some uh, basic announcements. Now we've moved up a little bit. The pastor's conference is on March the 16th through the 18th. That starts at noon-ish on Wednesday. The first uh, presentation, I believe, is about 1.30. And I may be off on that, so don't count on me being right, but I think that's right. Um, Volunteers will be needed in different areas. Sign-up sheets out in the back. We'll need some volunteers on the Sunday prior to that to help set things up inside uh, the auditorium. Also, uh, Camp Arete, to a large degree, has filled all of those uh, volunteer positions. You got a nurse? A nurse and a te- activities director. I thought that's what you did. <laughs> it tells everybody to go get active. Okay. All right. Activities director and a nurse for Camp Arete. And I think that is, I've got more announcements up here and I know what to do with. Okay, I think that'll do that. Also, a reminder on the, um, I think it was announcing the wrong date on the Israel trip. It leaves on Monday, December the 19th. We return on the 30th. Uh, actually, we leave, leave Israel late on the 30th and return on the 31st. And that is, um, uh, that's pretty much set. So, uh, Alan? If you would, since I'm already up here. That's the unlock button on my car and in the console in the top, shallow. My gla- my pulpit glasses, please. Sure. Pulpit glasses, yes, please. Thank you. Okay. Until he gets back, I'll use the backup here. Okay. I think that about covers everything. Anybody know of anything I've left out? How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that we sin, that sin breaks fellowship with God. When we are born, we're spiritually dead. When we trust in Christ, then we are made spiritually alive. But whenever we sin, it immediately breaks that rapport or fellowship without uh, destroying our our uh, new status as being regenerate. Thank you. And But we need to be back in fellowship. That rapport needs to be recovered. So we confess sin, Scripture says. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together as a body of believers. Father, freedom stands in the balance in this year's election. 
A lot of people are unaware of that. A lot of people think that those statements are hyperbolic. They're not. We have a Supreme Court vacancy that could swing the court in the wrong direction. We need a president who will appoint someone who is a constitutionalist. We need someone who believes in the foundation, the founding ideals of this nation, and especially the founding ideals related to Christianity, that it is only biblical Christianity that provides freedom, that paganism does not provide freedom, that anything built upon the shaky foundation of Darwinism cannot possibly provide freedom. Anyone who thinks that a Marxist philosophy can provide equality or freedom is sadly mistaken and will reap the sad consequences of such a decision. Father, we pray that you would give us a nation that would still have a residual of people who have the moral courage and insight and discernment to elect a leader that is grounded in your word. And Father, if this does not happen, we know that this is just because you are allowing us to reap the consequences of our carnality, to reap the consequences of our rejection of truth, much as Israel did at the time that they wanted to have a king like all of the other nations. And Saul led them, at times they had they had success, but he led them to a tragic and terrible defeat at Mount Gilboa. And it's only your grace that provided a solution. And so we pray for your grace to this nation that we might have a solution that will uh, change the character of this nation and cause them to turn back to you. And, Father, we pray that you would give us insight into how you work as we study about the Holy Spirit tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's probably no doctrine in the Scripture about which there's more confusion in modern times than the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we had a renewal, so to speak, of the teaching of the Holy Spirit and the emphasis on the Holy Spirit that came out of what was what has been called the Pentecostal and Charismatic renewal that actually had its start just a little over a hundred years ago. Some branches of Christian theology, for example. Presbyterian or Reformed theology paid little attention to the role of God the Holy Spirit prior to the 20th century due to the uh, rapid advance and multiplication of Pentecostal heresy related to the Holy Spirit. It forced a lot of Reformed theologians to address the issue of the Holy Spirit and a lot of other people as well. In the process of studying about the Holy Spirit, though, there's a lot of misconceptions. And unfortunately, our default position, I think, especially because I think it relates to our sin nature and our own subjectivism and emotionalism, is that there's a default understanding that that is how we are to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, that it is he is subjective, he is related to our emotions and the way we identify whether we're in relation to the right relation to the Holy Spirit has to do with with emotion. Um, you can understand how people would get that if they are superficial readers of the Bible because the Scripture talks about the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, and a lot of people identify those qualities as emotional qualities. But when you study the Bible, 
They are not emotional qualities. They are grounded in the intellect of the soul and the focus of the soul. When the focus of the soul is on the stability of God, and who is our fortress, our rock, our refuge, then we have peace, then we have stability. And we can have real joy and happiness because it's not grounded in the shifting sands of anything within God's creation, but it's grounded on the eternal rock of our God. And love is the product of our understanding the love of God, which is then worked out in us through God the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people don't understand the, how the Holy Spirit functions even in the Old Testament. This has been a big problem for a lot of theologians in a lot of different ways, and it's important to understand, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 14, that God is a God of order. He is not a God of disorder. And when you approach the ministry of God the Holy Spirit with a presupposition that it's subjective and emotional, then what you produce is a it is a concept of the work of the Holy Spirit that is uh, disorderly. It's chaotic. It's the idea of mysticism. We talked about this in the past uh, two or three lessons ago, and we talked about how so many people want to come along and just sort of without really examining their view and their presuppositions, they default to a a mystical view of the role of God the Holy Spirit as he works within prophets. And I took us very carefully through a, a word study showing that prophecy refers to a couple of different things in the New Testament, neither of which has this idea of ecstatic exuberance. It has the idea, on the one hand, a prophet was someone who was a, a conduit through whom God the Holy Spirit revealed his will to his people. And on the other hand, the prophets wrote hymns and sang uh, praises to God. And it was a, the word ha- has, it's almost like, in English we have words like this too that have two almost uh, disconnected meanings. They don't both, they, they're not close meanings. And so that's the idea in the word prophet. And you have it related to Deborah, to Miriam, uh, to others that they they sang they they prophesied by means of music so it's used in 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 that way so we started looking at the holy spirit because these chapters in first samuel first samuel chapter 10 where we are studying as well as in um later on in first samuel we're going to run into uh some unique circumstances related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to Saul and later to David that are at the very heart of this this kind of a controversy. So I started last week looking at this doctrine of the, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and just walking us through, started with the general introduction that God the Holy Spirit is a person that liberal theology came along and said, no, God, the Holy Spirit, we were, they, they, see, modern liberalism, especially in America, was built on the foundation of Unitarianism. So there's a, a, a rejection of the concept of a trinity and a belief in just a Unitarian God. And so the Holy Spirit wasn't a distinct person in the Godhead, according to that view. The Holy Spirit was a, a force. And what I'm showing you through going through these, these passages is the Spirit of God is not viewed as just an impersonal force. He's not the Star Wars force. He's not uh, a Buddhist force. He's not some kind of New Age 
um, physical force that is uh, that binds everything together. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity of God and has a distinct role in revealing God's word to his people and a distinct role in carrying out the function of uh, 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 the functions of God's plan. So God, the Father is pictured as the architect of the plan. He is the master builder. God, the Son, is pictured as the uh, as sort of the uh, the, the uh, construction project engineer. And then God, the Holy Spirit, is the construction engineer. So this is what we see when we get our first introduction to the Spirit of God in the second verse of the Bible. But Genesis isn't the oldest book in the Bible, but it does talk about the the original creation. I think, as we'll see in the next slide, uh, we looked at this briefly last time, so this is review, that the Spirit of God is introduced in the second verse. First verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then I believe there's a break between verse 1 and verse 2. And then we read that the earth now is without form and void, Number first condition, it's formless and void. Something's happened. Uh, second, darkness is on the face of the deep. Darkness is the absence of light. Think about that a little bit. You don't have darkness unless light is gone. So darkness isn't a positive quality. Darkness is a negative quality. It's the absence of light. God is light, so for the, his creation to be absent light implies something happens which removes the light. So this is where I would put the judgment of Satan is between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, but you don't put a lot of time in there. That's the mistake that some uh, older dispensationalists and Christians made trying to figure out how to compromise with the godless science of Darwin. So we have a picture here of the earth. Its first picture is without form and void, a judgment, terms that are used in judgment context later on. It's dark. It's on the face of the deep, another word that is often used with negative connotations. And we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. He is bringing it back. What do you have in a condition of absolute darkness? What's the temperature in absolute darkness? No light, no heat. It's frozen. So the waters here are not liquid, they're frozen. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is working to regenerate the planet. In Job, Job is the oldest book. Job talks about the fact that it is by God's Spirit that we're, we're created. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now that doesn't deny the intermediate means of human procreation. But it is showing that the ultimate means of all human procreation comes from God, all human creation. Then we have other passages that emphasize the personhood of the Spirit, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him, indicates the Spirit of the Lord has an intellectual capability. Uh, Psalm 104.30, you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth, again emphasizing that it is God the Holy Spirit who renewed the earth. Okay, so these distinct references to the Holy Spirit uh, in Genesis, as we move through the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Genesis 1-2, 
and probably not mentioned again in the book of Genesis. The reference to my spirit in Genesis 6-3, often that's an idiom, and when people speak, it is uh, often an idiom for oneself. And I think it, that God was still present on the earth in Eden, the Garden of God, up until uh, Genesis chapter 6. Uh, there's only a couple of places where you have this kind of reference, which is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Then you have other references between Moses and Samuel, uh, the Spirit of God giving wisdom and skill to Bezalel and Holiab. We have the role of God, the Holy Spirit, specifically on Moses, making him the unique prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, Numbers 11, uh, 17, God says he'll take from the Spirit upon Moses and will put the same Spirit upon these elders that are now going to help him in dispensing justice in Israel. We saw Nehemiah 9, 20, where Nehemiah says that God gave his spirit to instruct them, that is, the Exodus generation, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth or give them water for their thirst. So the Holy Spirit was given to them in order to provide leadership for the theocratic kingdom. That's what's so important. It's understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age is personal, related to our spiritual growth, our spiritual life. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is given to enhance human abilities of leadership in relation to the theocracy of Israel, related to those who are building the, the tabernacle and temple, related to kings, related to generals, related to the judges of these things. We see a personal aspect to the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy. That's uh, Notice, we'll see this verse again tonight, but I want you to notice that the Spirit is called His Holy Spirit, Kadash, indicating the same phraseology we have in the New Testament referring to the to the third person of the trinity as well as in Isaiah 63:11. Okay, that took us up to our stopping point last time and then we were moving on beyond that. We've gone through Genesis, we've gone through the rest of the Pentateuch. Uh the spirit of God is not uh referenced significantly in Joshua and then we come to the period of the judges and this is the period of the judges is the period immediately preceding that of Samuel. And so we start to see the significant role of God the Holy Spirit in, with reference to leadership. And so I want you to take your Bibles, and we're going to be going to these passages. I'll put the key verses up, but I want you looking at the passages and so that you can also put notes in your Bible as we go from one passage to another so that you can later trace these steps from verse to verse as you go through the Bible. Now, Judges chapter 1 and 2 describe the the, the, the basic uh, themes, the basic structure, the introduction to the period of the Judges, which is a period of moral relativism, just like the horrific immorality of this nation today. They were a nation that rejected God and looked to themselves as the ultimate source of right and wrong, and everybody had their own standards. So the theme stated twice in the book of Judges is there was no king, in the land, that meant that they rejected God as the ultimate authority. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay? So, 
This is the period of the judges. So the first time we have a mention of uh, uh, of the Spirit of God is in relation to the judgeship of Othniel. Othniel. And let me just mention one thing to you that uh, the previous chapter gives us a great uh, instruct a great overview of what was going on uh, in the time of the judges. And so we see that uh, the, uh, the generation that came after Joshua in Judges 2.11 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They got involved with, with uh, the sexually immoral fertility religions of Baalism and worshiping the um, the Ashtoreth, and they forsook. That word is a technical word used in covenant language that relates to abandoning one's loyalty. So in other words, they're committing treason against their king. They forsook, they abandoned, they committed treason against the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. In this nation, we had a nation that was grounded upon a Judeo-Christian morality and absolutes by our founding fathers because they recognized that was the only, only for some of them it was a philosophy, for others it was a true Christian conviction. But they understood that Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Shintoism, uh, animism, uh, poly, any form of polytheism uh, were in incapable of producing a society of freedom. Only biblical Christianity grounded in the Old Testament and the New Testament could give real liberty and freedom. And so we're doing the same thing that happened then. We are rejecting the God of our fathers, and we are pursuing our our own pleasures and our own values and it will destroy us just as it destroyed many generations in Israel and has destroyed nations throughout history. In verse 14, we read, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. I want you to notice twice he uses the word hands. Hands is often used not literally in terms of the physical hands, but in terms of power, in terms of control. And so we have that metaphor. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. They were delivered into the hands of plunderers, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so they could no longer stand before their enemies. That's Leviticus 20, uh, 26. It's the fourth cycle of discipline. And so whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And this may be what's going on in this nation. No matter what your hopes and dreams may be for this political season for a turnaround, God may prevent it just as he did for the Israelites. And what may be coming may be worse than any of us have imagined. And you better prepare yourselves for that because this is a pagan nation. The the, the Christian base in this nation doesn't exist anymore. When I read the polls as to the people that evangelicals are voting for, it tells me one thing. Evangelicals are vacuous in their spiritual life. They don't know the Bible. They don't understand biblical absolutes. And not zero, not point zero 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 one percent could give you one of the five divine institutions correctly as necessary for the foundation of this country. They don't know it. If they did, they wouldn't be voting the way they're voting. They don't understand anything about nationalism. There's only a couple of candidates 
who understand the importance of securing the borders. There's only one that understands it in a constitutional way. Anyway, that's the issue. We have to preserve all of the divine institutions. So anyway, Israel did not. And so God sold them into the hands of their enemies, and his anger was against them. But God was always gracious. In verse 16 we read, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand. See, hand again. That's power. He, he brought them out of the hand of those who... I had something here a minute ago. Out of the hand of those who plundered them. So hand is a figure of speech for for power. Now that's the standard. So we see the first judge coming up in Judges 3.10. So we see the first cycle of of rebellion and then judgment and then deliverance. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan or Shethayim, king of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is basically Iraq today. Let's put this on the front page. So, so the Israelites are being overrun by the Iraqis. That's what happened in the first, this first cycle. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Now, one preview of coming attractions. Next week, we're going to get into the next chapter, chapter 11 in 1 Samuel. And what's going to happen is the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead on the Transjordan side, the uh, eastern side of the Jordan, are going to come under attack from uh, a particularly nasty uh, ruler of Ammon, which is modern um, Ammon, Jordan. The Ammonites controlled the area that is now uh, jo- much of what is now Jordan. And um, and so they, they they plead for a deliverer. It's, it's a continuation of the same cycle. I just want you to remember that. Uh, they're looking for another deliverer. Saul's going to be the deliverer in, this, in their case. So this first deliverer is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So Caleb's his uncle. He's, uh, he's Caleb's nephew. And then we're told that he is raised up, not only raised up by God, but he's given a power by the Holy Spirit. But it's not the empowerment that we get in the, for the spiritual life. It is the skill to conquer the enemy, to protect and deliver Israel. All of these judges in that sense, that area of their deliverance, are types of the role of the Messiah who will come ultimately to deliver Israel finally and and completely. And so we come here and we read here that... Um, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So what we have here is deliverance. So once again, we see this idiom of the hand, and we'll see this, the hand of the Lord. It talks about the power of God. So we've talked a lot about idioms over... Uh, over the last several years in different figures of speeches, different figures of speech, we have uh, idioms or one form of figures of speech. Another is a, uh, a simile which says something is like, so the power, uh, you might say that, that it was white as snow, that, that the blood, uh, that, that Christ's death will make us white as snow. That's a comparison. You have a good picture 
of, of fresh fallen snow. It's so, so white and pure. Nothing has touched it. No discoloration at all. That's a simile. But if you just call something something, then that is a metaphor without stating a comparison. A simile is a stated comparison where you use a word like like or as. And a metaphor is an unstated, unstated comparison. So using a phrase like the hand is an idiom that derives from, from a metaphor. Well, I've got an example here of some really bad similes and metaphors from high school students. I just had to find a way to squeeze this in here. Okay. This was a, taken from student assignments to write similes and metaphors. The first one, her eyes were like two brown circles with big black dots in the center. He was as tall as a six foot three tree. I like this one. Her face was a perfect oval, like a circle that had its two sides gently compressed by a thigh master. From the attic came an unearthly howl. The whole scene had an eerie, surreal quality. Like when you're on vacation in another city and Jeopardy comes on at 7 o'clock instead of 7.30. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. She had a deep, throaty, genuine laugh, like the sound a dog makes just before it throws up. The ballerina grows gracefully on point and extended one slender leg behind her like a dog at a fire hydrant. He was as lame as a duck. Not the metaphorical lame duck either, but a real duck that is actually lame. Maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. Her vocabulary was as bad as, like, whatever. Got to think about that one a minute. She grew on him like a colony of E. coli, and he was room-temperature Canadian beef. That's about it. Okay, really bad analogy. So this is a metaphor for power, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Now, this in, in, the, in the Hebrew literally means just that, was upon. It's the verb, hayah. Uh, for, for, which is a general to be verb, past tense, so it's translated was, and the preposition all upon. It's not in, okay? The Holy Spirit indwells us. We look for a preposition in. The Holy Spirit is in us, okay? This is upon. This is important because later on in Samuel, we'll talk about the demons and Saul, and the demons are upon Saul, but they're not in Saul, okay? This is an external influence by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Othniel. Then the next judge where the Holy Spirit is mentioned is in uh, Judges 6.34, and this is our, our good friend Gideon. Gideon, and as well as others in Judges, are listed in the uh, great chapter, Hebrews 11, the Hebrews Hall of Fame chapter, and a lot of people try to interpret the Old Testament in light of the fact that they're mentioned as great men of faith in Hebrews 11. But great men of faith also have great feet of clay. Every one of these guys is after, from, from 
uh, Barack and Deborah on, they all have some little flaw. It gets, and the flaws get worse. Othniel's the only one about whom no flaw is mentioned. When you get to Sam, Samson, he's the only one about whom nothing good is mentioned. Because the, the book of the Judges is written to show the anatomy of a cultural collapse and a cultural deterioration. It's, it's not a, a book that is written to, talk, to, to praise Israel's obedience, but to reveal what happens when a culture is disobedient. So we have Judges chapter 6. Uh, they're in another cycle. This is the third major cycle. They're being attacked by the Midianites and uh, sort of a coalition of, of Midianites and others that are coming in every time it's harvest time. And they're, they're, as soon as the children of Israel uh, uh, bring in the harvest, they, they come in um, and they take all, all everything that's been produced, sort of like the Russians did in Ukraine in the 30s, leaving just barely enough for the culture to survive. And so they're, they're getting ready to come in again, and we find Gideon kind of hiding out. The angel of the Lord comes to him and taps him on the shoulder and says, basically, you're the man. And Gideon says, no, I really don't want to be. And so they have this whole interplay with, where the Lord tells him exactly what he wants him to do, and Gideon says, just to make sure you want me to do this, we're going to do this little exercise with the fleece. Now, what Gideon is trying to do is not discern the will of God. It's amazing how many people think that Gideon is trying to figure out what God wants him to do. God has already made it very clear what he wants him to do. Go defeat the enemy. Gideon is trying to get out of it by giving God something to do that is going to be impossible. So he's going to put out the fleece and he say, okay, if this is what you want me to do, then we're going to put out the fleece and if there's dew on the fleece only and everything else is dry, then I'll know this is, this is what you want me to do. And so the next morning he got up, the fleece was soaking wet, and everything else was dry. So then he said, oh, well, I guess God can do that. Maybe he can't do the opposite. So uh, the next morning he said, I want the fleece to be dry and everything else wet. And when that happened, he couldn't get out of it anymore. And so uh, then God narrowed his numbers down to only only 300. And so all of this takes place, and then when we get down to verse 34 in, in Judges chapter, chapter 6, after the, or the, excuse me, the sign of the fleece came after the Spirit of the Lord, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he gathers all of his clan, the Abizrites, together. And it's after this that he tries to get out of um, uh, obeying the Lord. Which tells you something. The coming of the Spirit of the Lord on Gideon wasn't for spiritual empowerment because he tries to get out of it immediately after that. The, the coming of the Spirit of the Lord was for military capability only. So, but we have different language here. We have different language. We have the word lavash, which means, uh, in some places to, uh, to wear something or to clothe yourself with something. I thought it was interesting. The complete Jewish Bible set, translates it, the Spirit of the Lord covered Gideon. See, it's still an external influence. The Tanakh version of 1917 translates it, he the Spirit of God clothed Gideon. So the point is, this is still an external influence. It's not internal. 
Okay, and he gives Gideon the ability to uh, to defeat the Midianites, which he does. And then he immediately leads them into sin. He sets up a an ephod, which is a priestly garment, and he says, worship this. He acts humble because the people wanted to make him king, and he said, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. And then he has a son, and he names the son, my father's king. So Gideon is really a mixed bag, as are a lot of believers in the Old Testament. He has a few moments where he trusts God, and so he enters into the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. That always gives me great encouragement. In many cases, these guys failed more than they were successful, just like most of us in our Christian life. But God, in his grace, recognizes that they were They stood in the gap at a critical moment, and for that they are praised. In Judges 11.29, we have the um, fourth major incident dealing with the uh, attack of the Ammonites coming across in the Transjordan area. God raised up Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11, verse 29, tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, this is the same language that was used to describe Othniel. So, so the point, one point I'm making is there's not a cookie cutter formulaic language that describes this role of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're all different, but they're all external. We have the same language is used with Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And so this occurs and verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilad. That's actually how it's pronounced in the Hebrew. It's also a name. Uh, passed through Gilad and Menasheh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilad. And from Mizpah of Gilad, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. So he's uh, focusing on them. And then he makes a vow. Now this vow is really interesting. A lot of a lot of controversy over this vow. And a lot of people think that well he couldn't have really said what he said. Yeah, he could. He's paganized. That's the theme of judges, how a culture becomes paganized. And each one of these guys gets is worse than the guy before. He's between Gideon who leads the nation into idolatry and Samson who's a vicious, violent womanizer and a rebel against every authority in his life, including God. Okay, so Jephthah fits right in the middle, but he is going to trust God at a critical moment, and God is going to give him victory over the enemies of Israel. God's going to use him just like he uses us to do great things. But he makes a mistake because he's basically biblically ignorant about God, and so he makes a vow to the Lord that is vague and is a sort of a barter, like a lot of people do. Well, I'm going to make a deal with God that I'll clean this up if he'll help me with this. And under the Old Testament law, though, you were bound to keep your vow. And so he makes this vow, and it's not as simple as what the text says, that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is a public vow. He's making this in public. He is, he's like, like going into the courtroom, putting your hand on the Bible and swearing that this is exactly what you're going to do. Everybody knows it. It's not something he just wakes up in the morning and in silent prayer makes this vow. Uh, 
That's not what's going on. It is a public vow. And he makes this vow, and in verse 30 says, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will turn, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as an ola. That means a burnt offering. It's a very technical term. It's one of the first offerings mentioned at the beginning of Leviticus. In the first uh, chapter of Leviticus, you have the description of what an ola is. It is a burnt offering where the entire offering is consumed in fire on the altar. But he's thinking that a, a lamb or a goat or something's going to come out of the house. Now, remember I've taught about how houses were in the ancient world, that they would have a little, like like we have a, a, a connected garage, and you put your car in your connected garage. And I know when I was growing up, when the weather got cold in February in Houston, which you didn't do this year, uh, that my parents would, would put a dog bed inside the garage for the dog to have a little shelter away from the cold. And that was part of the house in the ancient world. And your prized animals uh, you would bring in in cold weather so that they would be protected in, from, from inclement weather. And so Jephthah is very shallow in his thinking. He thinks, well, you know, when I come home, a goat or a sheep's going to run out the front door. And he's made this bargain with God. Now, I want you to notice he makes the bargain right after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. As I pointed out with Jephthah, I mean with Gideon, the Spirit of the Lord closed himself with Gideon, and then Gideon makes this foolish attempt to get out of God's will. The point is the role of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with their spiritual life or having anything to do with guiding or directing them. It's just a military capability. Jephthah does the same thing, and a lot of evangelicals who are weenies, and I've said that in front of those who were weenies, just can't stomach the fact that he immolated his daughter on a burnt offering pyre. He burned her alive because that's what his vow was. He's a pagan. Or he's, he's a believer, but he's been paganized so much that he thinks like a Canaanite. And that's the point of the story, is to show how depraved even this leader is that God graciously chose to, to um, res- rescue Israel. And we're told when Jephthah came to his house... At Mizpah, his daughter came out dancing and, and having a celebration, and, you know, he is just, he tore his clothes off. I mean, he ha- this, this is what you do when somebody dies. You rip your clothes off. You tear them to shreds. You go into extreme mourning. He knows exactly what's happened. And later on in the text, he said that he did to her exactly as he vowed, verse 39, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. The language is very clear. He did exactly what he vowed. What did he vow? He vowed to offer whatever came out the door as a burnt offering. So the Spirit of the Lord is coming upon these people to give them capability to defeat the enemy, but it's not spiritual. Same thing happens with, with Samson. Judges 13.25, here it uses, in Judges 13.25, uses the word, uh, to impel or to move. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Again, it's an external influence. And, and the same kind of language that is used elsewhere. Now, 
this is all important for understanding how the the Holy Spirit is moving in this particular time. Now, last time I also mentioned about um, a holy ab in Bezalel. And there the language is a little different, going back to Exodus 31. God said, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic work. See, it's not to sing, to praise, to uh, submit to one another, to be thankful to God. Those are spiritual qualities. That's the result of the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. This is something totally different. It's filled him with the Spirit to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels, for setting in all manner of workmanship. It's the verb malah, which means to fill. But it is for the purpose of doing a job that is related to the construction of the temple, or the tabernacle, rather. Okay, so then we come to the kings. So we've seen that the role... Uh, of the Spirit was to empower the judges, to give them wisdom, to give them military skill, to defeat the enemies of Israel, and to deliver them. Uh, the Holy Spirit gave the craftsmen skill in what they did so that they could uh, make the beautiful furniture of the ark, and there was no tabernacle or temple that had furniture in the ancient world that was as glorious as the furniture in the, in the temple of God, in the tabernacle of God. In 1 Samuel 11, 6, we see the first reference to the kings of Saul and David. We'll talk about both of them and contrast them because there's a definite comparison and contrast going on. In 1 Samuel 11, 6, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul. This is the same language that you have with Othniel and also with, with Jephthah. It's simply he was upon uh, Saul when he heard this news. And so this is, again, external external influence. And then we have a little different language. This different language is in relation to uh, David. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, Then Samuel took the horn of, of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, if you're reading this in the English, it looks like it's the same thing, but it's it's different. Um this verb is also used in other places of Saul. I picked the exception here in 1 Samuel 1.16. Excuse me. Excuse me. Let me correct myself. In 1 Samuel 11.16, the Spirit of God came upon Saul is the same verb that's used of, of uh, David in 1 Samuel 16.13, salach. And it means to rush, uh, to cause someone to prosper, to cause someone to succeed, that's the same verb that's used in the, all the instances with Samson too, by the way. It has this idea of rushing uh, upon him to bring about uh, prosperity and success. So both the First uh, Samuel 11:6 and the First uh, Samuel 16:13 are using the same, uh, the same word that's used for, for uh, and used for Samson. It's external. Then we have. Another example of the Spirit of the Lord come in relation to um, in relation to David in First Chronicles twenty eight eleven through thirteen. Now this is one that I had not had not caught my attention in the past, and that is when David is is giving the preparing the plans for the tabern for, for the temple. Excuse me, when David is preparing the plans for the temple, 
Remember, God said, David, because you were a man of war, you can't build a temple. That's going to be reserved for Solomon. But David did all the work. He got all the building materials together. He pulls in uh, a lot of those who will eventually do the work. He uh, helps. He, he makes all the blueprints, all the drawings. He designs the temple. And here we learn that he did all that by means of the Holy Spirit. That this is the, the drawings, everything in relation to the temple are by means of the Spirit. And First Chronicles 28, 12, And the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of, of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers around the treasuries and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. So that's another way the Spirit of the Lord worked in, in David. He worked in him in terms of inspiration as he wrote Psalms. He they empowered him in his victories over Goliath, over the Philistines, and over the other enemies of Israel, and empowered David in terms of, of wisdom, but also in terms of giving him the, the wisdom in laying out the plans for the, for the temple. In 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David when Samuel anointed him to be king. But in 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen, the next verse we read, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, we'll get into the demonology issues related to all of this, but let me say again, this spirit, this evil spirit is external, not internal. It's not demon possession. It's just demon influence. So we, but we see here the hint or the statement, rather, the clear statement that the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. Now, this has caused great confusion for some people because in the New Testament, the sealing of the spirit it's part of our understanding of eternal security. So what they read back into the Old Testament is illegitimate. They're trying to interpret the Old Testament by means of the New. And when you do that, it's like, oh, the, they lost the Holy Spirit so they could lose their salvation. No, that's not what's going on here. The role of the Holy Spirit didn't have anything to do with their salvation or their sanctification, but was given in terms of providing uh, providing administrative and leadership skill for the nation. So now the Spirit of the Lord is leaving Saul, and Saul just is going to go downhill, and things are going to get really, really bad for Israel from 1 Samuel 16 to the end of 1 Samuel because the Lord has departed, and and the leader is without divine guidance. Samuel's dead. Samuel's going to die very shortly after 1 Samuel 16, and so there's not going to be prophetic guidance for, for Saul and the Holy Spirit's gone. So God just says, okay, you want it this way? He backs off, uh, hands are off. You're, I'm, I'm going to let you find out what it's like to be without me. We may see that in this country. David recognizes that he could lose his salvation after the sin with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah, and all of the sin related to that. He prayed to God when he confessed his sin, and he said, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He prays that because he knows that God removed the Holy Spirit from Saul. So he's praying that God would not discipline him like he disciplined Saul by removing God the Holy Spirit from him. Now, another interesting example 
although it's not specifically stated, uh, although the spirit is not specifically stated, is Hiram, who is uh, from Tyre. Uh, he is the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So he is Jewish, and he is a uh, his mother's Jewish. His father is from Tyre, but he's filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. All those three terms: wisdom, understanding, and skill, and working with metal and wood were all terms that were used of Aholiab and Bezalel. The only thing missing in this verse is a specific reference uh, to God the Holy Spirit. But God the Holy Spirit was seen in Exodus as being the one who filled Aholiab and Bezalel with wisdom and understanding and skill and working in bronze and wood. So uh, it, it we can infer that God the Holy Spirit is the one who is empowering uh, Hiram to do the same kind of thing that Aholiab and Bezalel did because he's the chief architect and builder of the temple. Okay? So that's, that deals with a flow through the, through the early kings and in the united monarchy. Now we also have a number of prophets that were empowered temporarily. Azariah is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 7. Uh, Jehaziel, who operates during the reign of, that's a typo, Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, verses 1, 22, and 23. And then Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, during the reign of Joash in Second Chronicles 24, 20, are all empowered temp- temporarily. Most of the prophets, though, were empowered by the Holy Spirit in their prophetic ministry throughout most of their ministry. So we have those examples uh, among the prophets. Uh, other prophets were filled continuously. They're filled continuously. For example, Elijah and Elisha are both filled. Second Kings two nine. Elisha asks for a double portion of God's spirit upon him. Elisha says, "What do you?" Elijah says, "What do you want?" And Elisha says, "I want a double portion of your spirit." So that is, he, both Elijah and Elisha are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit for their ministries. Micah says in Micah 3.8, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and, by, and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So his ministry is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the last couple of ses- sections in here that I have uh, civil administrators. Moses is empowered as a, as a prophet and as, uh, as an administrator in the civil government. Uh, God is speaking and says, I will come down and talk with you there. Remember, he talked to Moses face to face. And then he said, and I will take the spirit that is upon you and put the same upon them. These are those 70 elders. So the, the spirit is going to be given to the 70 elders to carry out the civil administrative responsibility. It's the only divinely based bureaucracy in the history of the planet. Since then, all bureaucrats and bureaucracies have had problems. This is the one that is divinely inspired. Then... Uh, we have another example in Numbers 27:18. The Lord said to Moses, "Take Joshua the son of Nun with you." Remember, Joshua is the only one in the Old Testament that didn't have any parents. He was the son of Nun. 
I throw these things out there because maybe you'll remember them through these really bad puns, and you'll remember a little bit about what the Bible teaches. Okay, so Joshua is the son of Nun. It says, take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So God has already given the Spirit to provide leadership for Moses. I mean, for, for Joshua, rather. So Joshua has the Spirit guiding and directing, empowering him as he is going to defeat the Canaanites. So all of these are references to how God the Holy Spirit works up through the early or the former prophets. The former prophets are uh, the writers of Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, the latter prophets, because they come later on, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Daniel wasn't a prophet. He, his book was always in the writings. It wasn't put in the section called the prophets in the Old Testament, but in the writings. Numbers 27, okay, let's go on. Let's just look and see what the role of the Spirit in prophecy. How do the latter prophets speak of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really interesting because especially in Isaiah, we see passages in Isaiah that are clearly Trinitarian. They clearly indicate the full deity of God, the Holy Spirit, and the full deity of another character that is referred to as the servant of Yahweh. I want you to pay attention. In some verses, we have the Lord Yahweh speaking about sending my spirit Clearly two personages. And in other places we have God the Father or the Lord speaking, referencing both his spirit and his his servant. That's three divine persons. That's called the Trinity much, much later on. They didn't even have the word Trinity in the New Testament, but it accurately reflects what's there. So let's look at a few of these. In Isaiah 11.2, This is a messianic prophecy that the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. Who's him? Him is the Messiah. So clearly you have the father is inferred in the background who is sending the spirit of the Lord who's going to rest upon the Messiah. You have these three personages. In Isaiah 30 verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says Yahweh. So this is, we would say, this is God the Father. This is Yahweh speaking. That's the first divine personage who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit. See, this is talking about God the Holy Spirit here. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Who's speaking? God the Father. My elect, or my choice one, that's the Messiah, God the Son, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So we have the reference to the Father, Son, and Spirit in this one verse in the Old Testament. The Trinity is in the Old Testament. Who knew? How about that? It just isn't defined. The Trinity is in the New Testament too, but it's not defined as the Trinity. But we just have a more clear expression of three divine personages. And then we have the, the words of the servant in Isaiah 61.1, the servant is the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So we have 
the person speaking who's the Messiah, and he's referencing, and in all these passages, the Spirit of the Lord is clearly viewed as a person, not a force. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Looks like a third person just mentioned there. There's me, the servant. There's the Lord who's anointed me, and the verb there is Mashiach. And the Spirit of the Lord looks like the Trinity to me. To preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison prison to those who are bound. That's what Jesus did on the first coming. Another passage, we mentioned these already tonight. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Twice you have this reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Tanakh even translates it, the Holy Spirit. But it's lowercase, not uppercase. But that's what the language of the Hebrew reflects, so that's what they have to translate. Then in Ezekiel, we have uh, the Spirit of God is always moving Ezekiel around. It's really interesting. And I don't have a lot of those. Uh, Ezekiel 11.5, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. The Holy Spirit falling upon him isn't some kind of ecstatic thing because what comes out of his mouth is very rational and very articulate. So so what we do is from a post-charismatic environment, we want to read charismania and ecstasy back into the Scripture, and that's just, that's just backwards. Prophetically, the Spirit is going to be part of the New Covenant. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven. I will put my Spirit within you. Notice that's... Inside, so and this is clearly a new covenant. It's still future. God will establish his new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah at the second coming of Christ. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 37, 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Then we get to some of the uh, minor prophets. They're not called minor prophets because they're not significant or less significant, but because their writings are shorter and smaller. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are very, very large books that took up a couple of scrolls. Uh, these are very, very short, three, four, five chapters. Joel 2.28, it shall come to pass afterward. After what? After the battle of Armageddon, after the second coming, when Messiah comes and rescues Israel from the destruction of her enemies. God says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. When we look at clear passages where prophecy, dreams, and visions are used, they're not ecstatic. They're used to communicate rational, clear, rational truth, but you have to know the key for interpretation. Joel 2.29 continues that, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then to close out, Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel who is the king figure in Israel, the ruler of Israel, uh, after they returned from, from Babylon. He's not really a king, but he is the ruler. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says who? The Lord of hosts. Two divine persons there. So you do have a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, in the Old Testament. So this helps us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in the life of Saul, to empower him to deliver 
Israel from her oppressors. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. May may we be reminded that just as God the Holy Spirit enabled these deliverers to deliver Israel from their oppressors, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and fills us with your word is the same Holy Spirit who can give us the ability to be delivered from the things that uh, create problems in our lives. And when we, are, when we walk by the Spirit, we can realize that fulfillment in our lives. He gives us hope. He gives us purpose, helps us to understand your word and to apply it. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by all that we study to walk more closely with the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.